We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Tristan Justice, who's the Western correspondent at The Federalist. Tristan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, we always like to catch up with Tristan when he is uh, gets back from the road, uh, when he's been on a reporting trip. And that is the occasion on which he's here to talk today. He was actually in Phoenix uh, for a, a conference featuring uh, various Republican governors um, over the last couple, or actually, I think it was just last week. And that was an interesting time to be at this conference, which is annual. Um, but it's interesting because uh, on this occasion, they were gathering after Glenn Youngkin's surprise win in a blue state. And we've talked about Youngkin's win a lot on this podcast. And I think we all agree that it's accurate to see this as something of a mile marker and, or a landmark in uh, the, the culture war. But Tristan, tell us, you wrote a story about this for the Federalist. Tell us how uh, the various governors that were convened in Phoenix reacted to Youngkin's win at the conference. Well, they were certainly excited, and, and I think a lot of them were really optimistic going into next year. The Republican Governors Association itself was really excited going into next year. Um, they all seem to think that the map is very favorable to Republicans and, more importantly, the political climate, which I think they saw in Virginia and New Jersey. Um, I talked to people who work for the RGA as, as consultants, and they say they were pretty surprised at how close the results in New Jersey came when Republicans actually almost took the governor's mansion there earlier this month. But no, there was... There was a sense this there was this really this electric excitement surrounding Glenn Youngkin at this conference. I mean, South Carolina governor who's on stage and he could barely contain his excitement on stage as he was talking about Glenn Youngkin's victory sitting ne- right next to him. Um, but the bigger question that I went down with was, you know, whether Republicans had really learned much from Youngkin's victory. I mean, this is a guy who won a state that was trending blue for the last decade. It hadn't voted for Republicans statewide uh, in 10, 12 years. And so uh, had Republicans really learned to run on cultural issues um, like education and, and to actually win? But, you know, to, to actually run on cultural issues, they need to govern the way that they campaign. And so I think Glenn Youngkin is going to be an interesting test of that uh, going into next year. I think a lot of Republican voters are going to have this question, what's the point in voting Republican if they're not going to govern the way they campaign? And so I, I went down there and I started talking to as many governors as I could. And, not, and, I, and I came away a bit skeptical with whether Republicans had really learned lessons from, from Virginia. Um, I spoke to uh, my old governor. I, used to, I grew up in Ohio, uh, Mike DeWine, and, and he seemed pretty, he kind of held back when I asked him about going after critical race theory. I asked, are you, you going to ban critical race theory in schools? And and he took a he gave a fairly conventional Republican answer about vocational training and and saying we need to stop teaching victimization in schools, but kind of stopped short of promising some type of outright ban. And so, um, you know, every governor at the conference seemed to talk about education. They also talked a lot about um, going after the Biden administration next year on high energy costs. I, I think a lot of Americans throughout this winter are going to have quite a bit of sticker shock throughout the next few months as their power bills go through the roof. Um, and then a lot of the governors talked about inflation. So those seem to be the three main issues Republicans seem prepared to run on next year, uh, energy, inflation, and, and education. But it, I think a lot of that is going to be contingent on how Republicans actually govern next year. 
Yeah, okay, and this is uh, such an important point. And you, again, you can read Tristan's dispatch from Phoenix um, on our website on the Federalist, but it's important because we do need to understand how the sort of political machines are interpreting these messages from voters, because you can look at the Virginian ra- Virginia race and say it was just plainly about the idea of education quality and attention to, to education. And it sounds like DeWine's answer was along those lines, or you can look at it and you can say the, the animus or the, what animated people to deliver this victory to a Republican in a blue state um, was was Republicans finally fighting back in the culture war. And I think there are probably good arguments that it was a little bit of both and a little bit of, you know, grocery tax and and whatever else. Um, So it makes sense that the mood would be high at this conference. But Tristan, what were people talking about? I mean, was it was there a shifted focus um, to the culture war or was it still just a lot of Republicans talking about tax cuts? Well, after the first day of the conference, and I, I mean, I, I wrote, I started writing my my main story at this conference on the first day and ended up after the first day, I decided to wait to file and see what happened on the second day because I left, it was a two day conference and I left that first day, the first day of the conference really deflated. I felt like Republicans had just, uh, they continued to talk about the things they'd always talked about. They talked about taxes. They talked about regulation. They talked about the economy. They talked about inflation. Um, I didn't hear educa- <laughs> education barely came up on that first day um glenn youngkin was on the series of panels that i saw and he was the one who brought it up of course since that's the guy who who won his race almost entirely on education um but i mean i left the first day of the conference feeling like the republican party had really just remained as conventional as it was (laughs) pre-donald trump um and so but on the second day of the conference it seemed like education had become the dominant topic and so I, i do think you're right though in saying that there's a little bit more nuance in these races every governor still has to answer answer to their own local state. And so, you know, education was such a big issue in that Virginia race, I think in large part because it kept being ag- <laughs> it kept being aggravated by uh, a series of events that happened in the two months leading up to the election. For one, you've got Terry McAuliffe standing on stage saying, I don't believe parents should have a say in education. And then a few weeks later, you've got um, the National School Board Association sending a letter to the Department of Justice um, asking them to target parent concerns parents as domestic terrorists. And then you have the attorney general defending the Justice Department's uh, decision to investigate parents. Um, and, and, and then you have the president of the teachers union endorse all of this uh, and then go campaign for Terry McAuliffe on the closing of the, of, of the campaign. And so, I mean, there was just one, one episode after the next, just, just aggravated education even more into that race. And so every one of these governors has to go home and, and, you know, their different issues affect different voters. But I think education is also unique in that this is a part of the culture war that's playing out across the country. I don't know a single state where this isn't necessarily an issue. I, I mean, I asked Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy what he plans to run on next year. He gave an answer about uh, public safety, his record on COVID and um, energy issues. Since the federal government has been so relentless in preventing Alaska, um, where the federal government owns 60 percent of the state's land from developing and harnessing its own resources. And so while uh, so it's important to know that all these different states do have different issues to run on. But I mean, education is really at the focal point of the culture war and, and Republicans, I think, it would, would be wise to follow the model of Glenn Youngkin and, and really adopt this issue and become champions for the kids' education. Um, but again, they still have other issues to run on as well. 
Yeah, tell us a little bit about what the other issues, what were some of the other top line issues that the governors were talking about? Uh, one of them was definitely gas prices, gas prices, gas prices. And mm. you know, this could this could be a little bit of my own just personal bias from covering Western issues and inherently in that is, is energy issues. Um, so maybe I just had an ear for it. But I, I mean, it, it was every governor who kept bringing up prices at the pump and, and how that was exacerbating inflation and how um, that was, you know, making making it harder for for middle income middle and lower income americans to to uh, uh, pursue opportunity and so uh, another issue i think is important to know is is immigration was talked about a lot as well um governor abbott was on a panel the first day um and and every governor <laughs> one governor actually explicitly thanked governor abbott for doing what the federal government wasn't and that is deploying the national guard and giving them arrest powers to actually um enforce the border um it's an issue i think republicans see michelle lujan grissom who's the governor of new mexico I, that's an issue that republicans seem to think she's vulnerable on since you've got um neighboring state republican governors uh trying to protect their states from this massive influx of immigration and she's been silent on this um and and so and and she's she's up for re-election next year and so uh, immigration gas prices and energy issues and inflation uh, i would say dominated the conference i think education came up primarily because glenn youngkin brought it up but but again uh, you know this is governor elect and, and i think conservatives are right to be skeptical about you know what type of, of governor he, he he'll eventually be uh, i think he's already let some people down when he came out and said he's while well, he's not going to implement mask or vaccine mandates he's not going to prevent them either and and I think I think conservatives have come to expect um, their their leaders to be a little bit more aggressive in this now. I mean, I think conservatives are tired of constantly being on defense and just saying no all the time, and they want to go on offense. I mean, they want what you know Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida is doing, where you're being proactive rather than reactive, and that means banning vaccine mandates altogether. And so I, I think that was disappointing to a lot of grassroots conservatives um, earlier this month. Well, yeah, talk to us. I was I was literally just going to ask next how the uh, how the governors assembled for the RGA conference, how did they talk about COVID and the sort of federalist issues when it comes to uh, managing their state's response versus now the federal government's response under a democratic administration? I don't actually recall COVID coming up all that much other than... That's interesting, though. That, that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Well, I think the Republican Party has largely moved on. I, I think you have a fundamental difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. You have one party that wants to learn how to live with the virus because the virus is never going to go away. And then you have this other party that's kind of clinging on to this idea that we could eventually reach <laughs> zero cases. Yes, COVID <laughs> zero. Yes. And and so, I, I mean, it, when it did come up, it usually came up in the context of how these governors really protected the freedoms of of their of their of their citizens and their in their states and how um, their refusal to lock down has been the sole reason why the U.S. has begun to recover from the, the pandemic recession. I, I mean, I, I think that that explicitly did come up one time. You know, if, if, if one governor said, if, if all the Republican governors chose to stay locked down like the blue states, we'd still be in a deep recession. In fact, it, we'd probably be in a depression. Um, and, and that comes out in all the data. Um, a job, jobs are coming back faster and, and, and states that were run by Republican governors refused to lock down. Um, they're economies are going faster and that's playing out real time.
And that's exactly why I'm surprised for all of the reasons you just listed that this wasn't a bigger focus because it's it was this, this governor sort of acted from the perspective of conservative as conservatives as this bulwark, especially DeSantis. I mean, he has rocketed to uh, stardom in the Republican Party largely, if not almost entirely, because his response to COVID has been so robust and so I think timely. If you if you understand the mood of the Republican base in a way, a lot of the Republican establishment doesn't. And of course, he's governor of Florida, so it's a little bit different. But at the same time, it, it does seem like that is such a, a clear success story um, for Republicans. I guess I'm I'm and it's why governors are so relevant right now, because we saw the sort of system of federalism uh, be activated in a way that we hadn't uh, necessarily on on huge high profile issues in a really long time. I guess, Tristan, did it does it strike you as interesting, given uh, that perspective that this wasn't a, a bigger focus? Um, I didn't find it all that surprising considering just the things that Republicans uh, are, are tending uh, to, to, to focus on right now moving into next year with immigration, economic issues, routine, which in, in the economic issues, they are important. I mean, people prices at the pump are important. They make a difference. Higher prices at the, at the grocery store make a huge difference to, to middle and low income families. Um, and, and education, of course, is kind of the focal point of this kind of umbrella term that's, that's encompassing the entire culture war. Um, but I do think Republicans are, 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 you know, ought to worry more about governors than anything else next year, uh, considering just how just how um, the pandemic illustrated how important it is to maintain these governorships. I mean, if you look at Florida, Ron DeSantis only only won that race by uh, less than forty thousand votes against Andrew Gillum in twenty eighteen. It's amazing how different the outcome that Florida would be uh, today had uh, DeSantis lost that race. Um, and so I also think Ron DeSantis found something in the Republican Party. He discovered that Republican voters are uh, I think the reason he's kind of become this champion in the party is because he's 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 taken on this mantle of being aggressive and proactive and and, and doing things um, uh, and before uh, before we have to react to them. And, and what I mean is, um, just like I said, with mandates, he started banning mandates rather than simply not implementing them. I think DeSantis really understands where the threats to our liberty come from. It, it doesn't come from a governor who says they're going to implement mandates. It comes from from allowing um, institutions uh, implement uh, implement mandates and, and, and letting the culture take over, and so I think that's why Ron DeSantis has been able to kind of capitalize on this movement moving into next year, and and I think that's one reason why the Democratic Governors Association said they're not gonna they're not gonna invest very much in in the Florida governor's race next year. They tried to walk that back a little bit that, uh, early after that came out, but I, I I think they're gonna have a tough time um, successfully investing in Florida next year. Yeah, and that's a it's a telling sign that they had already reacted that way. Um, Tristan, the Republicans hold more governorships um, than Democrats do right now. I think it's 28 to 22. Was there any conversation sort of from that 30,000 foot national perspective um, on the the RGA itself, um, its efficacy as a machine on the, the Republican Party as a whole's ability to get um, people elected in some of these statewide races or these state races. Um, was there a conversation about that? Because as President Obama was leaving office, uh, we did see that Democrats had been 
just hit really hard in state leadership roles around the country from governorships on down to sort of local posts. Um, was there some any conversation about uh, Republicans ability to succeed at the state level? Not publicly. Um, <laughs> the, the panels tended to focus on the issues that these governors are facing against the Obama or excuse me, against the Biden administration and, and the different issues that they're facing in their states. But the governors on the panels didn't necessarily talk a lot of policy. A lot, a lot of the policy talk was done on the sidelines of the conference uh, where um, the where the, the people who were running the political operation of the RGA would speak with reporters. And there seemed to be a, a lot of optimism that I saw in when they were you know, laying out the map and laying out you know, where they plan to spend, what the strategy is. I, I do tend to think that um, even before going into the conference, I think it's pretty clear that the Republicans have a favorable map going into next year. Um, uh, not just a favorable map, but a, a, a political climate that where this is animosity towards a Democrat in the White House. I think uh, voters are are uh, are frustrated with, with Democrats in general. And so, I, I, you know, the Republicans, they have more to defend next year, but uh, what they have to defend, um, the governors are pretty popular in those states where I think they're going to go on offense are states, uh, Kansas, Wisconsin, and, and Michigan, um, because, well, Kansas uh, is a <laughs> Kansas is, is, is a state that they should not have lost four years ago. In Wisconsin and Michigan, you have another pair of Democrat governors who are especially vulnerable. Tony Evers uh, in Wisconsin, he, you know, voters were turned off when uh, he he was hesitant on deploying National Guard. And, and Gretchen Whitmer's hypocrisy, I think, has struck a chord with voters in Michigan. You know, she was shut down the state and then tried to reopen her boat or uh, reopen the, the port to get her boat out. And so, um, no, I, I think a lot of Democrat governors have a lot of vulnerabilities coming out of this pandemic, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with how the voters react next year. Right. And on that note, I actually want to ask you more about how uh, this is twofold, uh, how people talked, how the Republican governors and other folks that you talked to uh, that were affiliated with governors, their staffs, whatever, how they talked about uh, Democrats on the state level. So other Democratic governors and then what were some of their big points of attack there and then how they talked about the, the Biden administration? Well, the Biden administration really became, it's going to be a primary target. I mean, you, our federal, the federalization of our politics, uh, or I should say, you know, I mean, they say all of politics is local. Okay, that, that it's still true in some sense, but I think politics is increasingly becoming this national thing where you might be running against another state, uh, a state candidate for governor, but um, you're also still running against the White House in some way. I mean, I, granted, that was partially mis calculation in Virginia because, you know, Terry McAuliffe was trying to run against Donald Trump, but Donald Trump wasn't in the White House. Joe Biden is in the White House and Joe Biden is is emblematic of where the Democratic Party is. And and I don't think Democrat candidates for governor are going to want to distance themselves too much from their incumbent in the White House politically. Um, so uh, the Republicans ran, uh, they're going to have to run on issues in their own states, but the issues impacting every state are, are education and, and absolutely economic issues because, um, and then that's, that's somewhere where this White House has been incredibly vulnerable. 
So this raises a, an interesting question. Maybe this is kind of hard to to quantify. So you can do your best kind of qualitative analysis for us. But was there a lot of talk about the benefits, or was there more talk about the benefits of Republican policies, or the the threats of Democratic policies? That is to say, were, were the governors assembled here talking more about Republicans or or more about Democrats? The governors assembled talked more about Democrats for sure. I mean, they, they really talked about Joe Biden more than anything else. I, I think it's a natural target um, considering Joe Biden is the, is, is, you know, the president, but he's also the leader of the Democratic Party. Um, and a lot of a lot of these governors still don't really know who their Democratic opponents are. There's still primaries um, playing out and they don't know who their exact opponents are going to be quite yet. And so they really kept it their their fire aimed at the president and the Democratic Party at large um and and many of them would bring up different issues impacting their state in particular the north dakota governor for example talked a lot about energy issues and how this administration was really stifling his state's ability to innovate and and um how this administration is trying to accelerate an energy transit transition um, into what is typically a, a 50 year thing into something by the end of the decade um, and how that's just not possible absent innovation. And so um, they, they aim their fire at Democrats uh, just at large, since I think a lot of them don't necessarily know who their exact opponents are going to be. And then I imagine that their criticism of the exact opponents usually came um you know, behind behind the panel when they're mingling with donors and 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 with each other. Something that's always interesting uh, at these conferences is the ability to kind of see who's resonating or who other governors and other maybe establishment types or, or people in the party and general party operatives um, are reacting to various different candidates or governors. And like, was there any energy, Youngkin aside, because that one's obvious, was there were there any standouts, you know, people who, who felt like or people who the conference maybe felt like or reacted to as though like these are rising stars or any any big names that just seem to have more energy behind them than others. Well, I think I think every governor likes to think that they're their own. They're they're the rising star. Um, <laughs> I will tell you, Emily, it was really interesting to, to kind of get a grasp of which governors that um, people thought might be in, in some type of trouble. And, I, and this is maybe just mingling from people at the conference. But <laughs> Um, rather than rising stars, there seemed to be, um, uh, I don't know, dimming stars. Uh, and these were the governors who Donald Trump has pledged to uh, endorse their primary opponents. That's Brian Kemp of Georgia. And um, I'm not sure if he's, he's if Trump's promised to endorse primary opponent or not, but and, um, actually I think he's termed with Doug Ducey. But the governors who Trump you know, battled with in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Uh, those were governors that people definitely had their eyes on. I think Brian Kemp's going to have a, a tough primary challenge next year. Trump has campaigned already, campaigned against Kemp in Georgia. Um, and I, I felt you could kind of see this weight on Kemp's shoulders at this conference going around, talking to donors and going on the panels, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that kind of answers the question. I know I kind of answered the opposite of your question, <laughs> but uh, it was interesting to see which governors um, weren't, weren't necessarily rising stars, but are um, might just get across the finish line to, to, to get the nomination again. 
No, that's super interesting. I'm actually curious if you could tell us more about um, where they, where other people at the conference thought maybe there were vulnerabilities. Georgia is such an interesting example, given all of the fallout from uh, the election controversies and the voting controversies, um, but also the cultural controversies, the uh, the MLB um, and the abortion laws and all of these different things. There's a Republican establishment there that maybe seems like uh, red meat to, to national Democrats and and leftists, but is maybe not well liked in their own state. And it's a, it's a changing state. Um, it's a state where people are saying this is this is a purple state. This is maybe on its way to becoming a blue state in the same way that people see Texas. So could you tell us more about actually what you heard in terms of uh, anxieties that Republicans maybe have? Well, I think the biggest unanswered question of all is what kind of dynamic is Trump going to play next year? Is his influence still dominant and is is the person that Trump picks going to win these contests or is Trump going to fade? Um, I think that's a question that remains to be answered. I happen to believe Trump is still this dominant figure in the party that the grassroots has embraced. And 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 so in these primary contests, Donald Trump's endorsement reigns king. Um there's going to be a lot of tests for that. But I think in the tests that we've seen this year, Trump's endorsement is worth gold in the Republican Party. And so Republican governors have to find this line where they don't alienate the former president who might run again, um, uh, but also, you know, trying to uh, court, uh, you know, these suburban voters who are so dis. dis- who are so disillusioned by by Trump, and, and I think Glenn Youngkin's a good case study of that. Who was able to swing double digits in the suburbs despite um, you know landing an endorsement from Trump in a blue state. Um, of course, Trump didn't campaign for Youngkin in the state, but also there are governors that Trump has clearly soured on. Brian Kemp being um, one of them, the only one at the conference that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, and so, you know, Georgia as a state trending blue, well, as a state that did go blue in the last election, you, you know, what kind of candidate is Brian, what kind of governor is Brian Kemp going to be over the next year to to be a competitive candidate, especially if Stacey Abrams runs? Um, and a lot of people think seem to think Abrams running might be a good thing um, since she had, she'd already lost before. Um, and so it's... It, some of these governors in the, in the past, I think, would be not a lot of the governors who are there are facing tough primaries. Um, Mike DeWine has a primary in Ohio by a former congressman who was a Republican Party Senate candidate. I think that has a lot of potential to be competitive. It, it really depends on whether Renacy pledges as much money in this race as he did for a Senate campaign because he, he had a, a competitive primary for the Senate campaign. Um, but you know, the people in Ohio that I've spoken to um, say Renacy could be competitive. It just depends on on, on the money game. But um, DeWine's not necessarily um, uh, Trump's not necessarily a big fan of DeWine either. And so that's another race that I think is probably one to watch. Um, and so a big question and, and reporters were even asking this of the governors at the press conference and they just kind of evaded the question, you know, what kind of influence is Donald Trump going to have on these races? And, and that's the that's the question that just no one has the answer to. Back in the early 2000s, Blackberries revolutionized how we communicated. But it was not long before Steve Jobs and Apple thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all-new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. 
It seems standard now, but BlackBerry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game changer at the time. They were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone. So for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. Now, as the gold standard, every power player from D.C. to New York City to Los Angeles had a BlackBerry. But just when they thought they had the market cornered, in 2007, Apple launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. Now, I still have a vintage BlackBerry that I like to you know, hold in my hand sometime just for old time's sake. But this story, the story that Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry is telling is one that we can't lose to history because there's so much important trends and important information embedded in that battle. So listen to Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Right. And I want to actually ask you about that. I was I was going to uh, this is perfect segue. Uh, so thank you, Tristan. I was going to ask you about this report from Third Way, which is a sort of centrist center left, um, but the left sort of despises them. Uh, think Tank, they did a qualitative study of Virginia voters, and uh, it's a really interesting report. We saw already John Favreau, one of the pod bros, uh, and believe it or not, a very super popular podcast of so former Obama administration uh, officials. This report that Favreau tweeted out and said everybody should you know, read this, it says that trying to graft Trump onto Youngkin fell flat with these voters. This is a, a survey of suburban Richmond and Northern Virginia voters. So they describe Youngkin positively as calm, well-spoken, and projecting warmness while directly contrasting him with Trump. In fact, their descriptions of Youngkin better mirror how they talked about Biden as bringing dignity and civility back to politics. Moreover, they saw Youngkin's campaign as being positive and forward-looking, specifically citing his pledge to raise education standards and to cut grocery taxes. Well, from McAuliffe's campaign, they only remembered negative campaigning and bringing up Trump. Here's a quote from one of the voters in the survey. I think if he had been Donald Trump, he wouldn't have been elected. No one wants that anymore. Um, in his differences from Trump, he's not so harsh or brash or in your face or disrespectful. He's actually intelligent and he conducts himself respectably in public. Um, it's, a, it's a it's quite an interesting survey. And I have another question for you after this one. But what was there? I, I imagine that there was a very little negative talk about Donald Trump. I know Larry Hogan was there. Um, and said something that was sort of like implicitly um, mocking or, or denigrating Trump, denigrating Trump. But how do you think that report from a center left think tank uh, jives with the conclusions that uh, some of the the governors uh, maybe receive or may, maybe took from the Yunkin race? Well, it's an interesting report. I've not I've not read it personally, but it, it sounds it sounds relatively accurate. I mean, looking back at that Virginia race, but you know, I think the, the Democratic or excuse me, the Republican governors uh, in, in Phoenix, they, while they aimed a lot of their fire at Joe Biden, Joe Biden's still in the White House. Donald Trump's not in the White House anymore, and so it just makes a little bit more sense um, to tie uh, whatever they're about to run against up against the administration. It's also you know, you're a Republican of a state. Uh, it, it's easy to 
you know, a lot of issues facing your state is a direct consequence of the Biden administration. You know, Alaska unable to develop their own resources. That's a direct consequence of the Biden administration. Texas struggling with the surge of immigration. That's a direct consequence of Biden of the Biden administration. Same with Arizona. And so um, Republicans have an advantage still uh, if they if they want to tie their opponent to Joe Biden. But at the end of the day, um, and I think this probably emphasizes your point a little bit more, these governors still have to run a lot on local issues, and that includes education. And, and this is really a, an area that's ripe for Republicans to take on because it is such a local issue and it's such an important issue. Um, and as Glenn Youngkin said, and when he was down at the RGA, he said, it's an issue that Republicans have been on their heels on. And that was a little bit perplexing, considering it's 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 an issue that should be at the forefront of the conservative movement. I mean, it, it, you're talking about school choice programs and, and 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 giving kids the option to 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 you know be more prosperous if they want to be. And so, um, it, it, education includes it includes it includes the things that progressive claim to be champions of. <laughs> Doug right. Deuce, I think, said it a little bit more articulate when he said, you know, 50 years ago, you had elected officials barring barring kids of color from from the school door. And now you have, um, you know, these leftists in education, keeping them locked in the school, <laughs> uh, locked in failing schools. And so it encompasses all of these different issues that Republicans need to be uh, tackling and aggressive on. Um, and, and I think that's why it's so right. You know, and school choice is an interesting issue, and I'm sure there was a decent amount of <clears throat> conversation about it because Republicans, it's one of those issues that Republicans have been convinced is what wins them or is what brings them, delivers wins to them for years and years and years. But Glenn Youngkin did not win um, by talking about school choice. And I'm not saying that to denigrate school choice. I'm a supporter of school choice. Uh, and I do think it's a powerful message in certain communities. But for suburban voters, it's not the top line issue. There's the the quote that I wanted to read you from this third wave report, which I think is just out, Tristan, so there's no problem that you haven't read it yet. Um, they, they concluded, CRT in schools is not an issue in and of itself, but it taps into these voters' frustrations. Voters were nearly unanimous in describing the country as divided and feeling that politics is unavoidably in their faces. They feel that people's ability to have a civil discussion has vanished and that they have to walk on eggshells, even on seemingly innocuous topics. This extends to discussions around race in schools, where they were less concerned with critical race theory as an idea or curriculum, but express frustration with the black and white approach they see taken towards such complicated subjects. This isn't about critical race theory itself, and we shouldn't dismiss that CRT isn't real and think we've tackled this issue. Many swing voters knew when pushed by more liberal members of the group that CRT wasn't taught in Virginia schools, which is obviously false. Um, that's my own little uh, insertion there. That's not what the report says. The report then continues at the same time. These voters felt like racial and social justice issues were overtaking math, history, and other things. They absolutely want their kids to hear the good and bad of American history. At the same time, they're worried that racial and cultural issues are taking over the state's curricula. And I read that in full because I think it captures the fullness of, of what Republicans and obviously this group believes Democrats need to understand about voters, that this is not merely um, about quality. This is not merely about content. This is a really deep frustration that parents now have that we are uh, we have been sort of bogged down by identity politics and by silliness. And as Bill Maher would say, are not a, a serious people anymore. Tristan, how did that take away from this third way report? How did that fit into the way Republicans were talking about Youngkin's win and about education in general? 
you see, that's the issue that they have to run on. And and at that conference, and I guess I was a little bit guilty of it 30 seconds ago, is 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 when education came up at this conference, they routinely went back to conventional Republican policy solutions of vocational training in school choice programs that Republicans had campaigned on for years. But the biggest issue in education right now is is this is the is embedding this these critical race theory concepts throughout curriculums across the country that's just spread this polarization and division in the country and it's a new issue that we haven't seen 10 20 years ago when school choice and vocational programs became you know the routine platform policies of the Republican party and and I felt like Republicans at this conference still didn't really seem to grasp that since they kept going back to school choice they kept going back to vocational training Glenn Youngkin was among the people who kept saying who kept talking about the race issues coming in schools they all touched upon it but it, it just felt it, it just felt like i was watching routine a, a conventional speech from republican politicians and so i think if, if republicans can kind of wake up to the new issue that's come that's in schools right now i think they can be a lot more successful and that's why i think school board races are going to be ground zero for really the type of you know second tea party that's kind of sweeping through over the next year and a half it was 10 years ago that the first party first tea party was energized by the obama administration's first two years of radicalism and i think we're seeing the exact repeat of history happen 10 years later we have the first two years of a democrat presidency with the democrat congress and then you have this wave of of progressive social issues um kind of uh, biting a bit too hard and so we're seeing the backlash of that play out in real time and this time i think it's playing out at school boards where parents are, are kind of <laughs> having their own version of wokeism <laughs> are being woken up to this issue and are are fighting uh, at school or at the, at, the, at the lowest level of local government in their schools to protect their kids from these toxic concepts that are just indoctrinating our children. Tristan, before I let you go, you sat down um, with Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy, who now wants a sort of state coalition that would combat federal overreach. I think he's particularly concerned about the intervention of, of Beltway types in Alaska, obviously, in, in his own state. Uh, tell us about uh, what Governor Dunleavy has in mind and what he talked to you about. So since I think it was still a little bit in its formation, I, I didn't really seem to understand um, some of the details of what he wants to accomplish with a new coalition. I, I mean, my understanding was when I was talking to him, he wants to build a coalition of states that are proactively uh, suing the Biden administration every time that the, the federal government tries to come in and interfere with their state's ability to um, develop and, and use the opportunities and resources that they have in their own backyards. Um, so, but states are already kind of doing that. I mean, the last governor signed on to, I think, five, five lawsuits against the federal government. I'm not really sure what this new coalition is going to be accomplishing or how effective it's going to be. Uh, I'm intrigued by it. Uh, I, I think Republicans should at least be exploring new options to protect their states from federal overreach. But um, what exactly plans to how effective it's going to be? Uh, I think that's a question that remains to be answered. Absolutely. Uh, Tristan Justice, thank you as always for your reporting and for uh, filling us in on your dispatches from events just like this one. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.